Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our reaction to the trade deadline and buyout moves. And we're also going to talk about our top five power rankings after the trade deadline. So a lot to talk about today, so let's just get right into it. We each picked three players, and we're going to talk about their moves to their respective teams, see how they're doing so far, and how they fit with their new team. So, Jalen, who is the first player that you're going to talk about? So the first player I had was a former Orlando superstar, Aaron Gordon, who was traded over to the Denver Nuggets, which was extremely interesting because a lot of the teams that were at the top of the list in terms of being potential candidates started with teams like the Minnesota Timberwolves who are on the very opposite end of the spectrum in terms of being a contending team. Now, Denver is in a weird spot because they were actually trying to address a position of need to a certain extent. They were pretty strapped at the guard spot, especially with Jamal Murray playing at the, uh, at the level that he was playing. Um, I think Monte Morris is going to be huge in terms of what his bench production is going to be overall. But one of the things that they needed to touch on throughout the season was what they lost from a depth standpoint when Jeremy Grant went out the door to go to Detroit. And so Aaron Gordon, to a certain extent, steps right into that role. He's a guy who's always been thought of as a guy who would work better as a third or fourth option on a championship team rather than your lead guy, which was what basically what Orlando was forcing him to be. Not only because of the fact that he was drafted so high out of Arizona, but the other thing is just the mere fact that he was arguably their most talented player, although I would say Nikola Vucevic was their best and most productive player. Aaron Gordon was the guy with the most upside and the most potential overall as a two-way wing. So Aaron Gordon was flipped for Gary Harris, who I think might be missed come playoff time because he was a guy who he he came up big in, in a few series last season to make that spectacular run work, especially uh late down the stretch. Um, I think that I think that's gonna be a guy who they might want to look back at and hopefully, you know, I think his contract is actually gonna be ending. I would not be surprised if they maybe tried to go back after him in free agency later on this offseason. But Orlando also got RJ Hampton, which I think is huge for them. And they got Denver's 2025 first round pick. It's first round protected. So it's kind of always an interesting thing because it depends on how things fall once that draft class hits and how the records land and where they land in terms of whether or not it'll be a top 10 pick or below. So I think that both parties kind of win this one to a certain extent because Orlando finally got like a, a productive blue chipper to a certain extent, I would say because of the, like the fact that RJ Hampton was so highly regarded coming out of this uh, coming out of this draft class at least earlier on and just somehow significantly slipped and then they also of course get a little bit of draft capital potentially use Gary Gary Harris as a as a draft uh not a draft facilitator because I don't know if he'll command a lot of like draft capital but like as another guy that they can flip for maybe other young talent and then for Denver they like a they literally attack their only position of need Gordon has been a really good slasher for them in these first couple of games that he's played with them and been able to move without the ball and really create a lot that I don't think they had before. You just gave Aaron Gordon the arguably one of the best passers in the NBA and Nikola Jokic. I think 
I think Denver just got significantly scary. And I think the biggest thing about that is the rest of the West, especially towards the top, did not improve at the trade deadline. Utah didn't move. Phoenix didn't move. LA's biggest move is Drummond. We'll actually talk about them a little bit later on. And then the Clippers, their biggest move is Rondo. And Rondo, from a regular season standpoint, is debatable. So technically, that's not competing against much. But nonetheless, I think Denver jumped uh, at the opportunity. I think that makes them a lot more dangerous. I thought this was a very interesting move by Denver because I wasn't really sure how Aaron Gordon was going to pair up with Nikola Jokic, especially that these these two are definitely two different players in terms of style. It's actually turned out very well for all the reasons that you mentioned. I mean, you, you put Aaron Gordon on a team with one of the best passers in the league in Nikola Jokic, a guy who's already up for MVP candidate. This is actually an underrated match that I think is going to make Denver better in the long run. Now, losing Gary Harris, I think, is going to hurt them in terms of the playoffs, especially given what he did for the team last year in the bubble. But I think overall, I mean, they fill the position of need, like you mentioned. I mean, Jeremy Grant left them when when he was really one of their better scorers on the floor. I mean, he was a viable fourth option for a viable third, fourth option for this team. And you needed to find somebody to replace him. And you really struggled with that all season. This time you get to the trade deadline, you get Aaron Gordon, who's a great player. I think that this is a perfect move for Denver, really, really catapulting them possibly in the West in the Western conference standings. My first move I want to talk about is another member, another former member of the Orlando Magic, Nikola Vucevic, to the Chicago Bulls. Before he was traded to Chicago, he was averaging 24.5 points a game, 11.8 rebounds, 3.8 assists, and a steal a game. He was shooting 48% from the field, 40.5% from three. Now, since the trade, he's played in two games for Chicago. Against San Antonio, 21 points, 9 rebounds, 3 assists, on 9 of 16 shooting from the field, 2 of 4 from three. Against Golden State, 21 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists, and a block on 9 of 13 shooting from the field. Now, Nikola Vucevic has proven to be one of the best centers in the league. And I think in the long run, this was a move that was beneficial to a, to a potential Chicago Bulls playoff run. Whether or not they make that run remains to be seen. But Vucevic has proven that he can be a first option for this team. And, what, and with what we saw in Orlando. I think that this is a good trade. And when you pair him up with Zach Levine, another all-star, I think this team has a lot of potential. I think there's also a lot of potential with this duo of Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic. I like Wendell Carter Jr. I like Daniel Gafford. They, they were two solid players for the Chicago Bulls. But if I, if I had to choose between those two and Nikola Vucevic, I would choose Vucevic. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing about it overall, right, is the fact that we were in a situation, <laughs> speaking as a Bulls fan, and Ryan, it's funny because this trade really, it really benefits you in a very interesting way as the non-Bulls fan because you were the one when we had our conversation um, with Ian and, uh, and Brooks about Chicago versus Indiana in terms of making a playoff push. We were going talent for talent well this significantly closes that talent gap you know what I mean at least at the top and you know Thaddeus Young you know I actually started to do a little bit of a deep dive in in terms of his production on the floor um Thaddeus Young could arguably 
arguably be six men of the year right now. I mean, that's I think that's something that is extremely debatable. I think next to guys like Joe Ingles, uh, Jordan Clarkson, who has been a bit of the front runner, but it's kind of had a lot more to do with the fact that he scores the most points coming off the bench, but he doesn't play in crunch time for them nearly as much. So that's one of those things where like, I think Joe Ingles has a legitimate shot at it because he plays a lot in the closing minutes and the closing lineups for Utah. Montrez Harrell is another guy that comes to mind, but Thaddeus Young is a guy who, if you, if you kind of look around the league and you kind of listen to certain um, NBA analysts, he's a guy who could arguably be, at the top of that list is a guy who facilitates a lot of offenses averaging, I think like six assists per, per 36 minutes or something like that, which is insane for like a start, like for like a non-starting power forward. Um, Then you throw Nikola Vucevic in there. And the first thing I said, um, I said this on Instagram, as soon as it happened was the two man game between Vucevic and Zach Levine is about to be disgusting because you give Zach Levine somebody that he can legitimately throw the ball down low to or work off in terms of screen and roll, pick and roll, pick and pop stuff. Vucevic can actually shoot the tray ball a little bit. And guess what? He's healthy a lot, <laughs> which is something that like I can't unfortunately say about Gafford or Wendell Carter. So I think, again, for the Magic, kind of talking about how they're kind of revamping this war chest, you put RJ Hampton in a situation where he gets – um, gets a big like Wendell Carter um, on the receiving end. Now, Daniel Gafford went to Washington, but I think getting a guy like Wendell Carter who still needs to kind of develop um, and they can work through with him in that development process now on a li- little bit of a slower timeline because at the end of the day, the Vucevic move was more about Zach Levine. Zach Levine has this year and next year before his contract is up. And of course, the biggest thing is you don't want to lose the best Mm, let me watch my words carefully here. The best Chicago Bulls since Derrick Rose, not including the fact that Jimmy Butler had a relatively short tenure in terms of being by himself on the Chicago Bulls. I would say that Zach Levine has been the best player overall from a production standpoint since Derrick Rose. And I don't think you want that walking out the door, especially because this is optimism Bulls fan here but I did hear certain discussions in relation to the fact that Bradley Beal will also be up soon and of course he has ties to coach Billy Donovan through Florida ties I'm not going to say that that's something that we can lock down but if I can get that as a one in a two situation next to Nikola Vucevic who has a very controllable contract Chicago Bulls could be really scary in three years. That's like, that's projecting very hard. But basically the Nikola Vucevic trade, man. First real trade of the day. Boldest trade by Orlando. Nobody saw that one coming. And he's had 21 points in his first two games with with the Bulls. So, I mean, killer. Yeah, I think that this was a win for Chicago because they found a great player to compliment Zach Levine. I think it's going to be interesting to see going forward. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, when we talked about the Chicago Bulls playoff run at first, we didn't think there was a great chance of them making the playoffs because of the fact that they would have to go to the play-in tournament. We weren't sure how they were going to match up against teams like Indiana and Charlotte. But this is a Chicago Bulls team now with Nikola Vucevic that may end up securing a playoff spot, not even having to play in the play-in tournament. So I think that's going to be interesting to see going forward. 
Jalen, what is the second move that you're going to be talking about? So the second one that I have is uh, through the buyout. And I, I mentioned earlier that we're going to talk about Andre Drummond. Here's what we're going to do. it. Andre Drummond being signed by the Lakers. And my reaction to this is more so, I actually want to get your view on this because I'm extremely mixed about it. Because my thing is, how does that help them? I just don't get it. I don't get it. The only thing that I can think about when it comes to Andre Drummond is they lost Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee in free agency. Now Dwight Howard is with the Philadelphia 76ers. And funny enough, JaVale McGee is actually back on the Denver Nuggets, uh, long removed, and probably is a bit of a better player now than he was back when he was with Denver um, originally. So now they're in a situation where you have to read the tea leaves. Marcus Gasol obviously is in significant decline, significant decline. And obviously with AD out, I don't know how much you want to rely on a guy like Montrezl Harrell to be your small ball five consistently. So I understand why Drummond might be of appeal. But in the playoffs, I don't see him being on the floor that much because like the best lineups that they had throughout the playoffs involved AD being at the five. So like in the regular season, that's cute. Like if, if AD comes back, if LeBron comes back in time to make a 15 game push towards the back half of the season to avoid having to be in the play in tournament and being within a respective seating, then like, sure, whatever. That's, that's a good signing for like, that time frame he's the good signing to keep the things afloat right now while those two guys are out it's decent but come playoff time I don't even think he's going to be on the floor so like how do you feel about the signing because I'm not really sure what it does for them besides stalls time which I guess is really all which some may say is all they need so I'm not really sure where I stand on this because I I think it's interesting that they made this move. I think it, it's something that I'm going to talk about a little later with LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, I think they're just trying to build a championship team. I think they're just trying to secure the fact that they're, they're also trying to build a championship team, but I think they're also trying, it's also like a panic move because I feel like they, they didn't need to go out and get Andre Drummond. They chose to go out and get Andre Drummond so that a team like Brooklyn couldn't sign Andre Drummond, so that a team like Miami couldn't sign Andre Drummond. I think that this, this, there, there's a lot of like panic behind this move. I think there's a lot of uncertainty behind this move as well. Um, where he fits on the floor is an even bigger question because, like you mentioned, AD has played most of the season at the five. Now, AD's been hurt, mm-hmm. but still, when he comes back, what is that lineup going to look like? I'm for sure thinking he's not coming off the bench. Mm. Andre Drummond is not a player that comes off the bench. He is a starting center. He's a starting caliber center in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Where does that leave Montrez Harrell? I guess he comes off the bench because, I mean, he's used to coming off the bench with the Clippers. Mm. And I guess he came to L.A. to fulfill the same role or start for them. I'm not really sure what his role actually is in Los Angeles. He is a great player nonetheless. I just don't know like where he fits in this LA team or on this LA team. I just don't know where I stand with, with this Andre Drummond move. It's more about fit. And, you know, I can understand with AD being out, 
you need a guy who can fill the center position while he's out. But when he comes back, what is this lineup going to look like? I mean, is AD going to play the four? Is Montrezl Harrell going to come off the bench? Is Andre Drummond going to start at the five? Is he going to start at the four? Is he going to be coming off the bench? I, I have more questions than answers about this move. Yeah, and I'm glad you kind of like touched on Montrezl Harrell in terms of all of this because he's kind of the one that's going to be most interesting as well because like he kind of got played off the floor in the in a in the Clippers series against Denver too. You know what I mean? So and I know that Nikola Jokic is a very like interesting, you know, circumstance when we're talking about the idea of like a guy of that caliber, not only as an offensive talent, but at least three inches taller than Montrezl Harrell can pass over defenses, even if it was a regular center, let alone a guy who was going to be playing a small ball five situation for them. And then you kind of just throw out the fact that I don't see Trez and Anthony Davis as a viable one-two punch at the power forward center spot, but I don't know if, I don't know if Trez and Andre Drummond can play next to each other either. And then that kind of leaves Drummond next to AD, which I guess is the most viable situation because you can move AD to the four, which is what he actually prefers. But that's not what their best production has come from. Now, they haven't had a rebounder of the caliber of a guy like Drummond. So that's debatable as to whether or not maybe that could work out because he's such a high a high caliber rebounder. Um, I don't know, man. That's going to be really interesting to see how things go because of the fact that these injuries make it where we don't really get to see what the development of this kind of uh, these kind of lineups could look like. And we're only going to get a very short sample size going into the playoffs if these guys come back in time. So. Yeah, that's why I wanted to kind of bring it up because I think with Andre Drummond, I think you probably said it best was it seemed like getting him was their retort to trying to avoid teams like Brooklyn, who has been picking people off the street, and the Clippers, who obviously want to try to get as good as possible. Teams like that, even even the Charlottes of the world who could who could really use um a center considering the fact that if they could even get a more competent center than Cody Zeller they're automatically like a significantly better team if you can just get a center that's more competent offensively and defensively than Cody Zeller which Andre Drummond obviously would be so I think they literally just stood in the way of other teams that had maybe a better need or a better fit for Drummond as kind of a roadblock and kind of picked him up as a way of saying, if you guys don't have them, that feel that that works out better for us. But other than that, until we see how the how the roster gets configured in a way that they play next to each other, we I don't really understand how the fit works either. I, I think it's just going to be interesting because I'm going to talk about this with Lamarcus Aldridge in a second. But every year, organizations are trying to build a championship team and, and the Lakers are trying to do that. Um, it's just about who you get and how they're going to fit on your team. And I think that's something that we need to, we need to kind of see in the next couple of games. I know Jalen, you mentioned off camera that Andre Drummond's supposed to start tonight 
um, is the 31st of March. So mm. um, looks like he's going to be starting tonight. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how he gels with the Lakers in his first game. Um, I just don't know where Marcus Saul stands either too, because I mean, mm-hmm. he's been, he's been kind of there um, and he's been, you know, coming off the bench recently for Los Angeles. So I don't even know what his role is going mm-hmm. forward. So like I said, a lot of questions, not a lot of answers, but I want to talk about, I wanted to talk about this LaMarcus Aldridge move to the Nets because I could see why people dislike this move, but Jalen, hear me out. I don't think that this is, this is as bad of a move as people are making it out to be. Like I said, every year organizations are trying to build best team that they can hope that they hope can win the championship. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Isn't that what the Brooklyn Nets are trying to do? They're trying to build a championship team. Brooklyn's trying to build their roster in hopes that they can win a championship. And this is especially true because of the fact that in the playoffs, you want to have your best players out there so that you can win a seven-game series. And Brooklyn has to deal with teams like Philadelphia and Miami on the road to the finals. And I think that's where you look at it and say, they are doing what they have to do to win games and win a championship. Isn't that what Golden State did when they signed Kevin Durant? Isn't that what Miami did when they signed LeBron James? So what's the difference now? There is no difference. If anything, this puts more pressure on Brooklyn to win the championship because they now have another all-star in LaMarcus Aldridge, who can arguably be the sixth or seventh option on this team, which is insane to say. So Brooklyn needs to win it all this year. I think, I think Ryan, I think that statement is true and false. So the true statement of it is more so leaning towards the latter part and more so like your ending, your closing statement to where you land on that. And that's that it puts more pressure on them to win the championship, right? It was the same thing for the Clippers literally last season. You bring in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, who was just coming off of a championship. You essentially put them on a playoff team that that pretty much held its own against a Warriors team that had Kevin Durant on it alongside guys like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, Draymond Green. And you drop them into that situation and you're expecting them to win the chip because you're making a move for those two guys, knowing that they're both in situations where at the time, and Kawhi Leonard still has not re-signed, let alone, you know, made any indications of re-signing. These were guys that could have potentially been two-year rentals. Now, Paul George has an extended, um, has ex- has signed an extension that is going to put him on the team for I think another four years now. But Kawhi Leonard is still up in the air, so still potential of there being a situation where you could miss out on him. I doubt it, but nonetheless, so you're in that kind of situation. Now you have to look at Brooklyn from their standpoint, and they're going to have a lot of money tied up in a lot of guys, but you have to also think about the kind of draft capital that they moved off from because they've pretty much mortgaged the the next six to seven years or so worth of draft capital basically on this season and next season and maybe one more season in particular. So maybe a three-year window in terms of the kind of guys that they have on their roster at the moment in terms of being locked up long-term. So I agree with that part. The part where you kind of compare it to other 
other big time signings in the past, other big time free agency moves or big time dynasty building in the in the past. That's the part where I maybe kind of need you to elaborate a little bit more just because of the fact that the Warriors were a homegrown team that traded, basically traded out Harrison Barnes for Kevin Durant. It's not their fault that Kevin Durant came available and that he just so happened to be $4 million more expensive than Harrison Barnes, which if you're going to pay $4 million extra for Kevin Durant versus Harrison Barnes, anybody's doing that in a heartbeat. In terms of the LeBron James three uh, uh, big three teams, those were three guys that were essentially in their prime. I do agree with that one. But beyond those three guys, they didn't really stack the deck. I would say the biggest thing with Brooklyn is you have James Harden in his prime. You have KD in his prime. He's just injured. You have Kyrie in his prime. He's been in and out of the lineup. You had Joe Harris, who's one of the best three-point shooters in the entire league. LaMarcus Aldridge is a guy who's been arguably one of the top 15 power forwards over the last, you know, five or six years. I guess the last two years in particular haven't really been indicative of that. But nonetheless, Blake Griffin, if you listen to this podcast enough, I've said that Blake Griffin is a top five, a top 15 player when um when healthy. He's had more dunks with the Brooklyn Nets than he's had in his entire tenure with the Detroit Pistons. I mean, you got up and coming guys like Nicholas Claxton, who's been playing really good minutes for them. It just seems like this is the definition of overkill to me. And then, of course, there's the whole KD resurfacing tweet of years ago talking about, can't we just be competitive? Well, I hate to say it to you. I'm not saying that this team is unbeatable because of these signings, but this definitely stacks the deck in a way that kind of just makes things feel a little unfair. And it feels like another one of those teams for Kevin Durant where you say, how is he supposed to not win the championship? So I want to elaborate more on the statement that I made. Um, if we think about the Kevin Durant signing, if we think about the LeBron signing, if we think about all these signings that Brooklyn has made, most of them have been heavily criticized. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think most of them have been mm-hmm. heavily criticized, especially LeBron leaving Cleveland. That they ESPN did a whole a whole segment on LeBron's decision to leave Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Kevin Durant, same same deal, or same thing, except he didn't get a segment on ESPN. He pretty much just made a segment. Uh, he pretty much just decided he was going to Golden State. People hated, hated the move because he was going to a Golden State team that had won 73 games the year before. Mm-hmm. What, what sort of help could they have needed? especially considering that that was a 73 win team. And then, you know, you go to the playoffs, you sweep right through the West with Kevin Durant, and then you go and beat LeBron James in a, in, in a five game series or in, in five games. This move has very similar implications, but I feel like it's very, it's very different in a way. Um, Obviously with the star power, first of all, I mean, you know, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson on Golden State, the Miami Big Three. And then you have, you know, three guys in their prime, Kyrie, KD, and James Harden, mm-hmm. along with, 
you know, former all-stars in LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin, um, great players like Joe Harris, you know, up and coming players like, like Nicholas Claxton. Obviously I see where there's room for criticism, but this all goes back to the statement that I made earlier. Every year teams are trying or every year teams want to win championships mm-hmm. and they want to build the best team so that their organization, so that their team can win the championship every single year. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? There is, like I said, there is no okay. difference. So I, I feel like that this is just normal GMs. This, this is normal GM material. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is how you would GM in a video game, like NBA 2K, <laughs> like like Madden. Like this, this is this is exactly the type of moves that you would make in a video game, except mm-hmm. they're doing it in real life. So I'll close it out by saying this: we should not be critical of this because if Brooklyn doesn't win the championship, that's when you would that's when you should be critical. Mm-hmm. Just like when LeBron lost the championship his first year, people were critical. No, I, I mean, I think that's a good good way to put it. At the end of the day, it's just well-scouted GMing. I mean, in terms of just like, yo, you see talent go out of the open market. The Spurs decided to do a buyout move for him rather than making a trade for him that would have been relatively unnecessary. Just pick the guy up and buy out. Now, my question to you will be this, though, because – um, we're getting a little, we, we had a little bit of an understanding and we kind of discussed it a little bit in terms of what Blake Griffin's fit was or what his purpose was. What do you feel like LaMarcus Aldridge's fit on this team is? Because now if you want to talk about a guy who feels like a, an acquisition that was simply to keep him away from somebody else. I almost feel like LaMarcus Aldridge is more of that guy than Andre Drummond even is, because I think Andre Drummond is a better player than LaMarcus Aldridge right now. But I do understand that the stretch big elements that LaMarcus Aldridge provides is something that's definitely going to be viable if you can bring him off the bench in certain situations. He could be a starting power forward for this team or even a starting small ball five, which is something that could be kind of interesting to experiment with. But what do you think his actual fit is on this team? Because that's kind of my biggest thing. Because you can talk about wanting to get better all you want. But at the same time, it's not really big time GMing to me personally. If all you're doing is trying to sway talent away from other teams. It's a definitely a, it's definitely a legitimate tactic. Very good art of war style move. But does it actually make your team any better? And that's kind of the thing that I do kind of wonder about Brooklyn. So here's the thing. I, I really don't know. This is another one where I really don't know what his role is going, is going to be. Obviously he's not starting. Um, unless, so. unless they decide to put DeAndre Jordan on the bench. Oh, okay. I see. That's the problem mm-hmm. because I, you and I both know Kevin Durant's not, not coming off the bench. You and I but both know. Yeah, no way. You and I both know when Joe Harris signed that big deal, he's not coming off the bench. Mm -mm. So where does that leave the rest of the team? I think it's going to be interesting to see what the second unit looks like Mm -hmm. because you already have Blake Griffin. We know he's coming off the bench. Nicholas Claxton, he's going to be a great player one day, but he's coming off the bench right now. Mm -hmm. Where does that leave LaMarcus Aldridge? 
Do we know if Blake Griffin's coming off the bench, though? I think that's probably the biggest question. That's the other I think question. that might be kind of interesting as well because the because I don't think, and maybe maybe somebody in the comment section on Instagram or something like that or Twitter can hit me up and kind of elaborate on this, or even if they want to do it as a comment under uh, uh, our stuff on Apple Podcasts, leave five stars if you do. Um, then it's one of those situations where I think somebody could kind of elaborate for me whether or not they think that LaMarcus Aldridge could play next to Blake Griffin. I just don't see it. I think that Blake Griffin has added a stretch element to his game where he could come a little bit away from the floor, which allows LaMarcus Aldridge to kind of bang down low, hit his little turnaround fade jumper that he's like well known for and things like that. But whether or not they can actually play alongside each other, I think that one's tough. So I think if you're saying LaMarcus Aldridge is coming off the bench, it almost feels like Blake Griffin would have to start, right? Like, so again, that's what I mean when I say like it is kind of tricky. But that's where we would play the when healthy game because, okay, okay. because, okay, if we think about Kyrie, if he's not playing right now, Kevin Durant, if he's not playing right now, Mm -hmm. obviously it changes because Blake's going to probably start. Nicholas Claxton's probably going to start. Mm-hmm. LaMarcus would probably get more minutes coming off the bench or he may end up starting. So I just think, again, there's, there's more questions than answers because of how he's going to fit on the team. Yeah. Brooklyn is really interesting because they are just signing dudes and throwing things at the wall and hoping that, that it sticks. Cause man, I think it's one of those things where, it's going to be just really interesting to see how these guys fit. And boy, I think the part that I got to be honest, I think this is the part that probably gets NBA Twitter and, Insta, and Instagram and just NBA guys in general kind of riled up about, about them is just the fact that. And specifically with Blake Griffin so far. For you to be able to just kind of turn back the clock the way he has, like, as of late, like, don't get me wrong. He's not like going crazy or anything. He did have a 17 point game um, very recently. Um, but for you to kind of just be able to turn the clock like that, it shows how unmotivated a superstar can be when they're in a situation that's undesirable. And I do understand that that's like anybody within a workplace. And I completely understand that. I don't want to poo poo that or anything like that, but it kind of goes to make you wonder like, Dang, you're gonna turn up for a team that already kind of has the decks, the deck stacked. Like at least it feels like still a regular signing if we grab you and we're getting you at the value that we've seen you at over the last couple of seasons. But for you to be able to completely 180 once you end up on our roster, it's kind of like the whole James Harden with the fat suit joke. Like plays a couple of games, I think it was 11 games with Houston. And he's, you know, coming in looking overweight. He's averaging like 13 assists a game because he's just not trying to shoot the ball at all. And then he comes over to Brooklyn. They won 18 straight games at one point. He's legitimately put himself into the MVP conversation. I don't think he'll win it, but he's definitely in the in the running. I mean, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some some water in the Brooklyn in the Brooklyn area. I don't know about, but like other than that, I think that might be the part that makes the the moves the most controversial is the way guys' knees are coming back to life 
<laughs> after stepping in into uh into the Brooklyn uh Nets uniform or you know instantly dropping 30 pounds off the dime on your first game <laughs> in a Brooklyn Nets uniform so maybe that's probably what makes it more controversial than the signing themselves is just the way the players are playing in comparison to what they were doing on, on their other teams I think it's just going to be interesting to see what this team does going forward I think the the idea of championship or bust is ignited even more because you already have more players and former all-stars joining a team that's already stacked with, with KD, Kyrie, James Harden, Joe Harris, and DeAndre Jordan. I think it's just going to be interesting to see if this team ends up winning the championship. Yeah. So let's talk about our third and final move of the trade deadline and the buyout market. Jalen, what is the third and final move that you're going to talk about? So, Ryan, I got to switch gears for a second and kind of talk about a move that wasn't made because we've talked about all the situations that have taken place in terms of moves that benefit teams, moves that are uh, TBD, to say the least, and moves that are just downright going to require an NBA GM himself to sit me down and explain why it took place. (laughs) Now, in this case... The non-movement, the lack of real desire to trade Raptors point guard Kyle Lowry is a head-scratcher if i ever seen one. Um, of course, everybody's going to refer to the way he left out in his final game, waving off to fans, kind of chucking the deuce at the cameras before he went into the locker room and initiating that or coming to the conclusion that that was indications that would be his last game in a Raptors uniform. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think that Kyle Lowry has the, uh, the, uh, the uh, gumption to uh, basically throw hints that he's going to be traded. I think he's in a situation where he kind of, you know, with the kind of situation that he's looking for, he's on the last year of his deal. He's looking for whatever team he goes to via trade to get, I think they said that he wants at least a two-year deal with each year being at a minimum of 20 mil. That's kind of a hard bargain to sell for you to be chucking the deuce. Like you just know you're going to get traded. I'm sorry. I don't think that's, I don't think that's leverage that you have when you're, I believe he's like 35. That's tough. So It was really interesting, but the fact that he didn't get traded made it even more work, made it even more weird when you move on from Norman Powell, who they traded for uh, specifically more so Gary Trent Jr. in a trade to Portland. And then overall, it just kind of seems like Toronto, like if you're reading the tea leaves on Toronto, if there was any year for them to kind of sit back and say, let's get high level draft capital. We've got Pascal. We've got OG. We've got Fred Van Vliet, which I think granted, I think Fred and OG are both like 27. So they're like right on the cusp of their prime. So I don't know how, how smart of it is smart it is to do a rebuild per se, but I don't know if trying to continue with Kyle Lowry moving forward is necessarily a smart move either. So. 
I want to get your take on it, but I, I, especially your initial reaction to seeing that he wasn't traded, but I thought we knew Victor Oladipo was going to get traded. It was just interesting that it was to the Miami heat, considering that they didn't have to give up the kind of, the kind of assets that we thought the heat would have to give up in terms of guys like Tyler hero, Duncan Robinson, things like that. But to not see Kyle Lowry moved at all seemed just as interesting as seeing Victor Oladipo get moved. I was actually shocked at both moves. I wasn't expecting Victor Oladipo to get traded, but Hmm. it did make sense in the long run, considering that it gives more time for Kevin Porter to shine at the shooting guard position. This move with Kyle Lowry was interesting. And now it just feels like a really awkward relationship between Mm -hmm. the Toronto Raptors and Kyle Lowry. I mean, we've heard all these rumors that Kyle Lowry was going to get traded and we heard he was going to get traded to the Lakers. We heard he was going to get traded to Miami. We heard he was going to get traded to Philadelphia. That actually ended up being the more likely destination, him going to Philadelphia for somebody like Danny Green, possibly. But the fact that the move wasn't made, it's just really weird. It's really weird overall because now where, where does that leave Kyle Lowry? I mean, is he going to sign an extension with Toronto? Is he going to is he going to want to stay in Toronto now that he heard these rumors that he's that he was leaving and he he waved to the crowd and he left the arena thinking he was going to be traded? I thought he was going to get traded to the Clippers mainly because I think he would be the best fit on that team. I don't know if he wants to even play for Toronto anymore, hearing that these these rumors were out there. And I think it's just going to be interesting going forward to see how Gary Trent Jr. gels with this team. I think losing Norman Powell was huge, considering that he's having his best career season thus far. But for Kyle Lowry, this is another one where I just have to wonder what happens? What happens next? Does he leave in the offseason? I just don't know what, what Toronto is trying to do going forward. Are they trying to rebuild is the other question that I'm thinking that they might attempt at doing, but it still is a weird position considering that, like you mentioned, OG and uh, Fred Van Vliet are both 27 years old, about to hit their prime. So it's kind of a weird time to do a rebuild. But I just want to ask, like, if Kyle Lowry – didn't get moved now is he ever going to get moved um i think that is a very interesting question because they always have they have a couple of options i mean i don't know if they're as great as they would have been during this trade deadline when they had so many bidders so many people knocking down the door trying to make significant championship runs. I think it's a little bit harder to conduct sign and trades and things of that nature during the off season when you've already kind of seen what the team's height is. And now, so you're moving into a situation where a guy is a year older, he's in a circumstance where now he might require a contract like Kyle Lowry, where in this circumstance, you'd be in a sign and trade situation. So you'd be taking on money. Um, not just for this year, but long-term, which is different from what they would have been doing had they had any of these teams been trading. They could have been potentially trading for a one-year rental, for, for all we know, if they didn't want to go for the extension. But, of course, if they win the championship, that would make it at least a little bit more worthwhile making the trade. Um, I mean, the search, the circumstances that they're really in is they either sign and trade him, sign him, 
and try to run things back on a healthy season in terms of Toronto playing in Toronto, not dealing with coronavirus nearly as much. And, um, you know, the fact that Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, Fred Van, Fred Van Vliet, uh, Chris Boucher to a lesser degree, guys like that will continue to develop and they can run this thing back considering that they were legitimately a top four team in the Eastern Conference just last season. And that was without Kawhi Leonard. And they won the championship. They're two years removed from that with a good majority of this core still together from that team. That's their first two options. The last option and probably their worst option would be to let him walk. And that would be maybe more so of a uh, thank you call for your services kind of decision, considering that he's been a part of Toronto's organization since I think, I think like 2012, I want to say. So it's been, you know, just under a decade in terms of his, you know, time with Toronto. I think he's, I think Toronto has been his long, longest tenure in the league outside of the fact that he also played with Houston and Memphis. So that would maybe be there doing a solid, thank you for all your, you know, your services. Thank you for everything that you've done for the city and for the, the country, I guess you could say in terms of Canada and then the organization itself, considering they were able to win their first championship with Kyle Lowry at the helm. So those are really their three options. I think that if I had to rank them in order, I would think that I actually think that the latter one might even be the first one just out of respect. Uh, I think there's a high possibility that they could maybe let him walk and maybe just let that money be freed up and use that as a potential way to maybe hopefully lure in some guys using the uh, using the available cap space. This was a team that was in the running for Giannis Antetokounmpo before Giannis did his, you know, pretty hefty uh, five year extension. Um, so they have some money to throw at some guys. I think number two would probably be the sign and trade just to make sure that they get some significant assets from a team that might be in need of his services while also being able to kind of lock up some long-term guys from a young, uh, from a young player standpoint. And then I think third would probably be the re-signing him to run it back. And I think the only reason why I'm putting that third is because his window was relatively short and I don't know if they're in a championship scenario, which means I don't know if he's going to want to re-sign with them. Um, if it doesn't mean that he's eventually getting dealt. So I guess that's how I look at it, but it's very tricky. They made this one very weird considering there's a lot of teams throwing out the white flag saying, please, we'll do anything for the most, for the most part to kind of get a, get a guy like Kyle Lowry. Speaking of Kyle Lowry in Toronto, I want to talk about another Toronto move and that's Norman Powell to Portland for Gary Trent Jr. and Rodney Hood. I think that this was a huge pickup for Portland. Powell's having his best season of his career so far. He's averaging 19.6 points a game, three rebounds, 1.8 assists, and 1.1 steals a game, shooting 49.8% from the field, 43.9% shooting from three. And his first two games in Portland, he's had he's had pretty good outings in both the games against Orlando, 22 points on 7 of 13 shooting from the field, 5 of 7 shooting from three. Against Toronto, 13 points on three of six shooting from the field and one of two shooting from three. I think Norman Powell is a strong two-way player, and I think he's going to complement Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum 
on the court. He's he's someone who can shoot efficiently from mid-range and from three. He's a versatile defender as well. I think he could also work well with Robert Covington, another solid defender in Portland on, on this Portland team. I think Gary Trent Jr. is a significant loss because it seemed like he was playing some of his best basketball for Portland, but I think he's going to be a solid complimentary piece in Toronto. Uh, I think he's actually having, he's having one of his best seasons so far. Um, I think Powell could make Portland a dangerous team in the playoffs, especially when this team gets healthy. Yeah, I think Norman Powell's in a situation where you know that the Trailblazers are making a win-now caliber move. Norman Powell is up at the end of this season as well. He's another guy who's going to be very, uh, very coveted or very – or potentially very in question come this offseason. He falls into the same pool as guys like Victor Oladipo, who are kind of having a bit of a one-year audition. Victor Oladipo, this is his last uh, season – um, under contract before he becomes a free agent and his entire MO, at least it seems from a national media standpoint, is that he's been trying to get to Miami. Now he's in Miami via trade. Now Miami didn't have to move nearly heaven and earth the way it seemed they were going to have to initially. But the thing is, now there's the debate between the fact of Kyle Lowry from Miami Victor Oladipo for Miami? Is there somebody else that might be in the fray? Like with the fact that that Victor Oladipo will be directly on their team, it'll give them a good front view look at him as a player and identify, do they want him? Victor can want to be a Miami Heat all he wants to, but do the Heat want him? especially when there's guys like Kyle Lowry that are now potentially going to be on the market. I think Norman Powell's in a very similar circumstance as well. And with the Portland Trailblazers, I think he's going to be given a really good opportunity to kind of, kind of continue that. Now I kind of, before he moved to the Western conference, I kind of deemed Norman Powell as the Malik Beasley of the, of of the East. Uh, He was a guy who was a consistent 18 to 19 point per uh, point per game scorer that kind of went out and you knew that regardless of the circumstance, he was going to put up his stat line and similar to Malik Beasley, he was going to get his 19 to 20, whether they won or lost, but it was always going to look as though Norman Powell had a productive game. And I think that if he could do that in a championship uh, at a championship caliber team uh, on a a championship caliber team with the stakes being significantly higher, I think that will kind of tell us a lot more about what his development as a player is going to look like moving forward. You said this off camera that, of course, he's moving towards his prime. Um, I think he's, what, 27, 26, 27? So he's kind of in that same fray as guys like Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet, obviously, in terms of guys that are moving towards where their peak is. So I think the other thing, too, is that Gary Trent, I think that Norman Powell is an upgrade from Gary Trent Jr. And he's going to play more frequently than Rodney Hood. So if you get the best of both worlds in one singular player in a win now move. It's kind of hard to say that Portland jumped the gun on this one. So I think that Norman Powell is going to be a really interesting addition to them. And I can't wait to see him get a handful of games under his belt with CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard, both on the floor, because that three headed monster of scoring is bananas. That's going to, I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be insane for the rest of the year. And it's going to be really interesting who they get in the first round. Cause I do have them making the playoffs. I think it's going to be really interesting to see who they match up with in the playoffs because 
we might see a lot of shootouts with this team involved. I think that this is, I think right now, this is a team that could go toe to toe with the Los Angeles Lakers and the Los Angeles Clippers, especially when healthy. I would take this team over Los Angeles right now, over both the Los Angeles teams Mm -hmm. in the playoffs. Um, But moving on now to our post-trade deadline top power five rankings. Jalen, I want to start with you on this one. Who who is your top five teams in your power ranking, or who are the top five teams in your power ranking, and who is the honorable mention? So I have to be honest, this one got kind of tricky in terms of the order. So uh, bear with me a little bit on this one. But I had um, the Nets at one. I had Utah at two. I had Phoenix at three. I had Philly at four. And then I kind of rounded it up. This is the part where things got a little hairy, but I have the Clippers at five. And that one's a little dicey. And I know that's going to be the one that we're going to probably have to conver- um, conversate about the most. But I have them at five with, although the fact that I think Milwaukee has been very good this season, my honorable mention would be Denver. And that's just merely out of the fact that I think they improved significantly at the trade deadline. And then you throw on top of that, the fact that Jamal Murray has kind of come back to the the legit 18 to 20 point per game score that we kind of saw in the bubble. He kind of actually expanded upon that in the bubble, but he's become a lot more consistent after kind of coming into the season flat-footed. And then when it comes to Nikola Jokic with LeBron James injured, with Joel Embiid injured, Kevin Durant injured, Steph Curry constantly going in and out of the lineup. I mean, you could argue that Nikola Jokic should be somewhere in the top two if not the front runner for mvp so i had denver as my honorable mention team that just barely didn't make it so my top five are number one brooklyn uh, so my top five power rankings number one i have the brooklyn nets number two i have the utah jazz number three i have the phoenix suns number four i have the philadelphia 76ers number five i have the denver nuggets and my honorable mention is the Portland Trailblazers. All right. So we've got Portland as the missing link in this one. So actually, we're going to work from the ground up because our top four are relatively the same. So we'll probably quick hitter those to close out the podcast. But in terms of our differences, it comes at the bottom to our honorable mentions. And then, of course, the the very uh, fifth position. So we're going to start with the team that we both had um similarly but we had them in different positions you had denver at five i had denver just barely out at six what had it for you specifically that pushed them into the top five for you was it the move for aaron gordon was it the fact that they've been coming on strong as of late um considering that they've won uh their last three games um the one like last three games the last four out of five is it specifically the play of Nikola Jokic what is it that's necessarily put them in the top five for you um it's all of the above um if if I'll start with the Aaron Gordon move first because that was the most recent move that was made I think that this is beneficial to the Denver Nuggets, especially considering that like we mentioned earlier they were really missing a true power forward and I think that Aaron Gordon is the guy that is going to compliment Nikola Jokic um, on the offense, considering that, like we said earlier, he's paired up with one of the best facilitators in the league in Nikola Jokic, an MVP candidate. 
Um, you also get Jamal Murray, who's been playing some of his best basketball recently. Um, Michael Porter Jr., who's coming on strong too. Um, I think losing Gary Harris, like we said, Gary Harris is probably the biggest loss in all of this. But I still feel like that this Aaron Gordon move benefits Denver in terms of a long-term playoff run. Um, and we talked about, you know, the effect of Nicole Jokic and his standings in the MVP in the MVP race. They're actually better now because, like you mentioned earlier, there's no Joel Embiid, there's no LeBron James, there's no Steph Curry, there's no KD. This opens the door for him to win the MVP. And he's making a great case this season, given the numbers that he's been playing up consistently. I think he's averaging almost a triple double at this point in the season, at, at this point in the season too. So I think there's just so much that there, there's so much going right at the right time for Denver, because you get guys like Jamal Murray, uh, who you mentioned, he was, he, he started out very, uh, very slow coming out of the gate or he was, he had a very slow start to the season. He's been playing great as of late. You get Aaron Gordon, who's a great player, and I think he's going to compliment Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jokic, the, the possible MVP this year, I think he's going to continue to, to put up the same numbers that he's been putting up this season. I think overall Denver is turning out to be a very underrated team, um, a team that we really weren't talking about early in the season to make a playoff run, but this team right now can make a playoff run. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about it is, uh, aside from Aaron Gordon at the forward position, another guy who's really interesting for this team is is Michael Porter Jr. I mean, that's the guy, and that's the guy we talked about coming into the year that he would be the needle mover for them in terms of whether or not they could get themselves over the hump as a legit championship caliber team. Because as that third that third scoring option at the wing position, one of the most prime positions in the NBA right now, he's their third leading scorer, 16.5 points per game, 7.5 rebounds per game, shoots 72% from the line, uh, 60.9% from inside the arc. He's shooting a cool 44.9% from three, and that's on like nearly six attempts per game. So he's at a pretty relatively high volume um, for the spot. And then he's shooting 53% overall from, from the floor. Like he's got really efficient shooting splits. He's a guy that's not taking too many shots. Uh, Nikola Jokic leads the team with nearly 19. Jamal Murray has nearly 17. And then he's uh, a far third at 11.8 that's that's controllable that's not Michael Porter Jr that's not the Michael Porter Jr we saw in the playoffs last season focusing on the idea of oh only two guys are running through our offense and that's making us vulnerable because they're playing off of only two offensive threats no he is asserting himself as a legit offensive threat for this team and it's been very productive as of uh, as of late and uh, the the production is there as the minutes are increased. I think some things to point out for people looking at Denver that are kind of intriguing and things to keep their eye on moving forward. Just some second level stat stuff is they're fourth in the league overall in points per game, 115.5 points per game. They are eighth overall in opponents points per game, holding teams to 110.4 points per game. They have the second to last pace in the league 29th in the league in um in pace of play that's it has more to do with their fast break production that has a lot to do with the fact that they're more of a half court style team which i think will actually be very beneficial for them come playoff time because those 
up and down run and gun teams tend to be hurt most in the playoffs when things slow down. So I think that's actually going to be pretty beneficial to them. And then from an offensive and defensive rating standpoint, they're fourth in the league in offensive rating and 19th in the league, which is just around middle of the pack in defensive rating, which is still relatively uh, efficient on a defensive front as a team that can be championship caliber. The fact that they're a top 10 defense in terms of opponents points per game is something that really stands out the most. So this is a team that I was very on the fence about and putting them at six kind of was like a, a five B kind of situation for me, considering all of these things, but Denver is extremely dangerous. And I think that they're going to be really interesting down the stretch with the fact that they're fifth in the West right now. And it's very, very possible that although the Lakers have kind of strung some games together as of late, it's very possible that Denver could usurp them as the fourth seed in the Western Conference with LeBron James and AD out. Um, so the other team that we have different, or the other team that we have um, on this list that we have in different spots, uh, it's actually overall different as well, is that you have Portland as your honorable mention as opposed to me with the Clippers that I have at fifth. So why do you have the, why do you have the Portland Trailblazers as a team in your top six at all, let alone why you had them just barely miss your top five? Yeah, this, this was a situation, like you mentioned earlier, where it was almost like 5A, 5B. I think Portland's a very talented team. And I think what, what made them my honorable mention was their move with Norman Powell. Um, I think that this was a huge move overall. And I think in the long term, in terms of a playoff run, which is what we're looking forward towards, or which is what we're looking towards and seeing how teams build up wins and build up, uh, build up wins so that they can uh, be seated higher in the, in the playoffs. I think it's more important that Portland builds because of the talent that they have currently on their team. Their biggest problem right now is injuries. And it was the same problem that with that has been, almost recurring last season and this season. And I mentioned this before the season even started. I think when healthy, this is the best team in the West. And I think that they have the talent to be the best team in the West. They have the talent to beat some of the best teams in the West, like Utah, like Phoenix, both of the LA teams. Um, Denver, I think is another team that they could, that they can also beat this year when healthy, but even Denver is having those injury struggles too. So I feel like it's 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 only about whether or not this team stays healthy, because when this team is healthy, much like Denver, this team is dangerous. Yeah, and I think that's the reason why I had to leave them off, bro. And that's I think that's the biggest thing is saying when healthy. I mean, it's very interesting that Carmelo Anthony and Enos Cantor have been very productive off the bench. Enos Cantor has given them 12 and 11. Dang, they're 12 and 12. Um, which is really good standout wise for them. Carmelo Anthony's giving them 13 and three. And the biggest thing for him that's been really interesting is the fact that he's shooting nearly 40% from three. I think those are all things that are really standout for them. But the biggest thing with me is, yeah, I think injuries is one of the bigger things. But one of the other things that stands out to me is the fact that they're a one-sided, one-dimensional basketball team. Going down to second level stats again, eighth in points per game at 114.8 versus opponents points per game is 115.5 that's third from the bottom in the league 27th overall look at it from an offensive versus defensive rating standpoint again fifth in the league in offensive rating out of 30 teams 
29th in the league in defensive rating. Now, one of the biggest things that I'll touch on, though, is this. Even despite injuries, they have been able to overachieve throughout this season on the back of a guy like Damian Lillard, especially with the fact that C.J. McCullough missed significant time. If you kind of look at what their expected, expected win-loss percentage was through this far into the season, they were expected to be 22-24 and 24 this deep. Out of, out of 46 games, 22-24. and 24. That would have been 18th in the league. Instead, they're 28 and 18, and they're six in the Western Conference. That's like a top, they're, they're a legit top 12 team overall in the NBA. And some could argue with the fact that the standings are so close throughout the Western Conference, they could arguably be a top 10 team in the NBA. So there's a lot of overachieving taking place for, for the Portland Trailblazers, but those injuries kind of hurt their case overall for me as a team that I feel like still is kind of capped out. Now, Norman Powell's um, acquisition will be a really interesting uh, caveat in this because if he's able to continue to be the guy that he was in Toronto, which so far he has, um, I think he actually had 19 in his first two games that he played with Portland, um, if I'm not mistaken. I think it might have been 19 or it was 21. It was something like that. But he had consecutive back-to-back uh, -back games with double digits. If he can kind of continue that flow for them next to Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, maybe they're a lot more scary than I think. But I think the fact that they're a one-dimensional basketball team is kind of where they lost me at. Now, on the front of the Clippers, what is it that had you leave them out? I feel like that they are they're they're not as good as the as the five or six teams that we've mentioned so far at that I've mentioned so far. Um, if I had to put them up against any of the six teams that I've mentioned, I don't think they have a chance. Um, it is sort of recency bias, um, given that they blew a sixteen point lead to the Orlando Magic, which currently they sit second to last in the Eastern Conference. Granted, they just gave up Nikola Vucevic, Aaron Gordon, and Evan Fournier at the trade deadline. But nonetheless, the Clippers have had a lot of bad losses this year against teams that they should not have lost to. You remember early in the season, the third game of the season, when they lost by 50 points to the Dallas Mavericks? That was a loss that should not have happened. This loss that just happened with Orlando, was a loss that should not have happened considering that the Clippers had a lead, um, had, had the lead at one point, a very significant lead at that. But I feel like that this team is just really discombobulated. I think that there is not a lot of continuity on this team. I think there's even less continuity on this team than there was on the team last year. And granted, we were, we were criticizing this team about the chemistry and how this team was going to gel on the floor together last year with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George in their first year. It just seems like it's gotten worse this year. I know, uh, Jalen, you mentioned off camera that this team has a lot of great three-point shooters on this team, a lot of guys shooting um, above 40% from three. But like I said, I mean, I'm not – I don't think I could trust the Clippers going forward. I, it's not so much in the playoffs. It's also in the regular season. I know that they have become a, a great regular season team, but I feel like when you lose to teams like the Orlando Magic, when you lose uh, early in the season by 50 points to the Dallas Mavericks, granted that was without Kawhi Leonard, I feel like these are losses that really hurt teams 
like the Los Angeles Clippers that are still trying to they're still trying to climb the standings in the Western Conference. And it's not even it's also not just that. Their move for for Rajon Rondo was very interesting. I feel like it, it was a move that had to be made, but giving up Lou Williams, that's a move that is going to hurt them in the long run. I feel like they added, but they also subtracted. Um, you know, with with Rajon Rondo, he's been a great point guard throughout his career. Uh, this year, he's not averaging uh, like great numbers, but still, he is a floor general. Point. He has one of the the highest basketball IQs of any of the point guards in the league and of any player in the league. Um, but I mean, you lost Lou Williams, who was arguably one of the best bench scorers of all time. He's also one of the greatest sixth men or sixth man of the year candidates, or he's one of the greatest uh, bench scorers of all time. I just feel like there's, it, it, it was, it was sort of a win lose scenario because you won because you filled out a positional hole that you needed with Rajon Rondo but you lost because you lost one of the biggest offensive sparks for this team. And I just feel like the Clippers are in, are in a very weird position right now. Yeah. So that, I think that's the part where I actually have the, the hardest retort. Actually, that's the part where I think you actually have me, maybe me the most stumped is the fact that I, the only part that I will will retort on this is i think that it might be in reverse that i think it might actually be the short term that is hurt and the long term that is actually where they actually end up thriving the most because the idea is during the regular season rondo has not relatively been the player that we've seen in the playoffs and with the fact that he's been in and out of lineups for the atlanta hawks throughout the season he's a guy who hasn't really been very productive this year and therefore we don't necessarily know whether or not that's going to be able to translate to the the Clippers now granted I think the Clippers are in a much more championship caliber situation than the Atlanta Hawks for example but nonetheless I think that he's in a situation right now where he can't really do very much for this team up front and I think that the question will be what he can do in the playoffs because I feel like that's more so what the trade is for because the difference between Lou Williams and Rajon Rondo is actually that Rondo has elevated his game in the playoffs as opposed to Lou Williams who I wouldn't say drastically underachieves in the playoffs but he is not the same player not the same six man Lou, Lou Will if you will in in playoff based scenarios he's not been a very productive player in the postseason as opposed to Rajon Rondo who has been on many a championship caliber teams and if even in teams that he hasn't been he was a team that made the Chicago Bulls significantly um competitive when they had Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler he was a team that made the New Orleans Pelicans very uh, very very competitive in the Western Conference um, and was part of the reason that they were able to win that one series against Portland um, in the opening round. I think that was a 4-1 knockout where it was Rondo, they had Drew Holiday, AD, and DeMarcus Cousins was on that team at the time. So he's a guy who's been able to make teams very productive in the postseason and kind of play above their weight to a certain extent. So I think that with that being the case, that's more of what the signing was for. And if that's what I'm projecting it to, then I feel like that's one of the things that I'm going to lean on. Now, in terms of the regular season itself, I think the big thing for me when it comes to um, when it comes to the Clippers, and you can kind of retort on this if you would like to, because I've kind of have my own uh, 
my own kind of feelings about how they've been so far this season. But if we go down the second uh, second uh, spectrum stats, and I know that's one of those things that I've kind of been reading down so far throughout this podcast, but I tried to lean a lot less on points per game and a lot more on like overall production on the floor. Uh, seventh in points per game as a team with 114.9 points per game. They're sixth in the league in opponents' points per game defensively at 108.5. They're first in the league overall in offensive rating, and they're 13th, which is around middle of the pack, but they're in the top half of the middle of the pack in terms of defensive rating. So they're overall a relatively balanced team. Then you throw out the fact that you have multiple guys shooting near 40% or over 40% from three on relatively high volume. Kawhi Leonard's at 38.5% on on five attempts. Paul George is at 42.6% on 7.5 attempts. Nicholas Batum, 42% on four attempts. Marcus Morris, 46.6% on five attempts. Patrick freaking Beverly, who's shooting four of these things a game game and hitting 42% of them. Lou Williams, before he was moved, was shooting 37%. I mean, it's a handful of guys. Serge Ibaka has been a a legitimate stretch five, stretch four for them, taking about three of them things a game, and he's shooting 35% from three. So I think my big thing for them is because they're an overall balanced team on both sides of the floor, and they have so many guys doing the one thing in the league you need to do the best is three-point shooting. They're doing it at such a high clip throughout the roster. I just think that they've been relatively better throughout the year. I mean, what's your, what do you feel like is your argument versus and comparing Portland to the Clippers? I'm not necessarily saying you have to add them to your list, but why is it that you put them over the Clippers specifically? So in terms of, you know, the three-point shooting, I can understand why you would like defend. I can see why you would put the Clippers in because they have, they are one of the most balanced teams in the NBA, but in terms of the three point shooting, we've seen the detriment of taking too many threes a game. We've seen the detriment of not making those threes when you need them most example, game seven of the Denver LA series last year. That's my thing. That, that's really one one of the things that I have holding holding this team back is because I I know that they are a great three point shooting team, but if a, if as a team they struggle shooting threes, then they're going to more or less lose the game. A team that relies on the three ball heavily, much like I would say a Rockets team, the Rockets team that in Game Seven when they lost to Golden State, they took a lot of threes and couldn't make one. I feel like that's their detriment because I feel like if this team makes it, if this team attempts a lot of threes, but they don't make them, that's where you lose games because the one thing you have going for you isn't working for you. And I kind of saw this a lot with the NCAA tournament because there was, you know, all these great offensive teams were struggling in the tournament. Uh, I would say the big one was Texas. Especially now they were playing, now granted they were playing a top five defense at Abilene Christian, but Texas could not make a lot of threes in that game. They were struggling offensively. And I feel like that's the that's the case almost, it's it's almost like an NCAA NBA comparison. But I think that that Texas team, I, I think that the Clippers could end up like that Texas team. 
if things really fall apart, especially in the playoffs when you need three-point shooting at the most. I don't think I can necessarily argue with that. The high volume of threes is definitely something that can be in a make or miss league, as they say, uh, a certain certain thing that can be a detriment as much as it can be a help. I would just say that my only retort to that would just merely be the fact that this was not a very great three-point shooting team last season. And so the fact that, and they weren't taking as they weren't taking Arguably, I would say they weren't taking enough threes last season under Doc Rivers. They were more more of a half-court team that played a lot inside the paint, played a lot um, inside the arc. And so I think that them expanding their game so significantly and not only being a legitimate three-point team, but being one of the better three-point teams in the league, three-point shooting teams in the league, um, I think is one of those new elements, new wrinkles to their team in comparison to last season, I think can actually help them. But I do agree that it's one of those things that in a situation where you rely on three so heavily, it could be one of those things that kind of brings your team to a standstill if you struggle from back there. So we're not going to go through all four of these teams because it just kind of seems pointless with the fact that we know that all these these teams are not only in the same order for both of us, but we kind of feel like universally there's going to be a lot of people that at least agree with these four teams in some kind of order. So out of these four teams, we'll close the podcast by talking about What's one team out of these four at the top that you'd like to discuss? I want to actually discuss Utah because I think that this is a team that just gets frequently lost in the shuffle. I I would also kind of group them in with Phoenix too, because both these teams seem like they're just getting lost in the shuffle. They're, they're great teams overall. We've discussed how these teams, how, how successful these teams have been this season. Utah with the three point shooting, this season, I mean, they have eight guys who are legitimate scorers on this team. Um, you have a guy in Joe Ingles who's really stepping up big for this team. Royce O'Neal as well. Um, the, the, and then Jordan Clarkson, who arguably could be the sixth man of the year this year. I mean, he's having one of his best seasons this year. And then you look on Phoenix. I mean, it kind of just furthers the narrative that Chris Paul makes teams better. Um, I mean, Devin Booker is having one of his best seasons so far. They have I believe it's six guys that are averaging double digits right now. I these these are two of the best teams in the Western Conference, and it's unfortunate that they're not getting talked about enough because of the fact that they have this much talent on their team and they are winning games. They are most likely going to finish as the one and two seeds in the Western Conference. But I just think it's interesting that in the midst of all of the trade deadline talk, these two haven't these two teams didn't make any moves, but they're still playing some of their best basketball. I guess, I guess my question to you, Jalen, to close out the episode is did, did, did it feel necessary for these teams to make moves? Um, no, honestly, I think that that's one of those things that I feel like is good about the NBA in certain circumstances. And when you look at a team and you look at a roster and you say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Sometimes that's just, a non-criticizable offense. I think that's one of those circumstances where um, I think that they were smart on their ends to actually go this route. And I'm glad that these are the teams that you picked because I knew for me that I was actually personally going to pick Phoenix. I feel like Philadelphia is in a very interesting circumstance because we need to see what happens with Joel Embiid. I think the Nets, the Nets have just been extremely dominant as of late. And I think the biggest thing with them, we talked about it a lot already earlier on, is just how their fits are going to be with some of their new guys that they've acquired with Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge. I just really wonder what they're going to do moving forward. 
forward. James Harden is a legit MVP candidate. Kevin Durant hopefully will come back before the regular season is over to get some reps before the postseason. I think the Nets are very interesting out there in the Western Conference. But I think when we look at, at, at this team, um, this team in Phoenix, and even if you want to look at Utah as well, they're just in a situation where there's not really much that they need to really address. And I think that if they if they moved any guy, they would be moving a, a legit cog in their system. I think the thing that stands out the most for me, if we look at Phoenix, for example, is that they've been they've been extremely good on the defensive end, which is like really caught me lacking for sure. This is a team last season that was 20th in opponents points per game. This year, they're third. Significant jump. Not only were they out of the playoff, just barely out of the playoff picture last year, but now they're that they've jumped all the way to legitimately a top two seed in the overall overall in the Western Conference. So not only are they taking significant strides as a defensive team, as an offensive team, I mean, they're relatively still around middle of the pack offensively. I think they were 10th last year and they're like 11th this year. But like from a defensive standpoint, they've made a significant jump and that's that's actually translated to their win, their win loss. And one of the things with them is just the mere fact that they have the they have an abundance of guys at the most prime position in the NBA. I've said this earlier on. The wing position is extremely important in the NBA. They've got Jay Crowder playing at a high level. Cam Johnson, who a lot of people criticized, including myself, <laughs> on that draft pick. And he has turned out to be exactly the kind of guy that they want in that, in that locker room. Another guy that obviously comes to mind is Mikael Bridges. DeAndre Ayton has been very, very good on the defensive end, covering inside the paint and being a legitimate rim protector. Not necessarily from a defensive standpoint, but Dario Saric has been really good for them off on offense um, as a guy coming off the bench as a small ball center for them. Um, they're in a really, really good set of circumstances where the Phoenix Suns are going to be as scary as a team as they've ever been throughout their history. And that includes back when they had Steve Nash, uh, Sean Marion, uh, Joe Johnson, like when you go down the list of some of their more high potent offensive teams, even some of those, you know, seven seconds or less teams that included just the two man game of uh, Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire, this team as a overall well-balanced machine, well-oiled machine, I mean, they're, they're as good of an offensive and defensive team as we've seen, you know, in a while for that franchise. And then, of course, Utah. Utah's just been a juggernaut. I mean, Joel Ingles, I think, is like somewhere close to setting like the the overall league record for effective field goal percentage coming off the as a guy coming off the bench for them. You know, you can't really define whether or not Donovan Mitchell is an MVP candidate or not because like his team is so dang good as a as an overall. They got Rudy Gobert as a legit, you know, defensive player of the year candidate. I agree with you. These two teams probably aren't talked about enough. And it's kind of crazy considering they're atop the West, which is arguably still one of the toughest conferences out of the two. I would still argue that they're the better conference overall top to bottom and they're at the top of it. So I agree with you. I think these teams need to be talked about more and I'm glad that they're playing at the level they're playing at. And this is a good way to transition to our question of the day for our fans. Do Utah and Phoenix finish as the top two seeds in the Western Conference to close out the season? 
This has been a great episode today on Hoop Talk Podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode.